God, I pray that you would teach us this morning, that you would send your spirit to help us to understand rightly what your word says, and then send your spirit to help us apply these truths to our lives. I pray that you would be with us and that you would um, continue to shape us and mold us after the image of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, my family was out uh, with another family at the state park um, several months ago, uh, early summer. Uh, we decided to go out after uh, dinner and just have a little, uh, a little time of uh, fun with the family. And so we went to the little playground there uh, by Hamlin Lake, uh, by the pavilion, and we were uh, enjoying ourselves, having a good time. And uh, my son sees the edge of the water, and um, he asked if he could go over next to the water. So uh, all the adults were over by the, the slides and stuff, and so I told him he could go over there as long as he didn't go in the water. So he went over there and kind of like paced back and forth at the edge of the water uh, like a little boy does who's really trying to be very good. And, and eventually, a couple minutes later, he came back over and, and asked if he could actually go in the water. And so I thought, you know what? This, this should be okay. So I went over to the edge of the water with him, and I had him take his shoes off and his socks and everything, and I, I told him that he could go about this deep, you know, about, about calf deep is how uh, deep he could go. He's wearing shorts. I didn't want him to get them all soaked. We didn't have swimsuits and these kind of things. Um, so before long, the other kids uh, saw that one of them was in the water, and they thought that they should be in the water too. And so they all crowded over here. They took their socks and their shoes off and everything, and suddenly we've got a bunch of kids uh, in the water. Now what happens next? Do those kids go home dry? No, they don't, right? You, you tell them, you know, this is the level that you're allowed to go to, and they go to that level, and then what do they do? They see that there's really fun stuff a little bit deeper than that. And so they're just kind of looking. They're trying to be good, they're, they're, but they're looking, and they're just kind of testing, and then, okay, I'm not going to go there. And it, but, but then they end up running back and forth at that same depth, and then by that point, they're already a little bit wet because this, the water is splashed up on them. And at that point, like, what's the point of, of staying at that calf level? So they're going to test the boundaries, test the boundaries, test the boundaries. Some of the little kids end up falling in, and so they're all the way wet. So now it's just a free-for-all, right? So we took home five soaking wet kids that night. But this is what we do, right? We, we, we go right up to the edge and, and we kind of test the limits. We, we see how far we can kind of push the limits of that. We, we test the boundaries and, and when we get right up to that edge and we see that not, nothing bad necessarily happens, then, then we're going to see if maybe the edge is actually a little bit further. And so we keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, testing the limits, testing the boundaries. And, and most of the time, uh, like if you're at Hamlin Lake with the kids and you've got adults there, it's not that big of a deal, right? But there's a sense in which this can be incredibly dangerous. We're looking at, at the life of a, a first century church, the church in Corinth, and they're having some real issues here. The, the church in Corinth is, is really drawn to the edge. They're, they're what we, we might uh, call edgy Christians. They, they feel like they're really strong, they're confident in their faith and in their maturity and their wisdom, so they're really drawn to see just how far they can go and be okay. Well, Paul's going to give them a huge warning in the section of text that we have before us this morning. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. We'll look at verses 1 through 22. If you haven't turned there, this would be a good time to do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, if you need to borrow a Bible, feel free to do that. The Pew Bibles um, have 1 Corinthians 10 on page 1134. So 1 Corinthians 10, we'll do verses 1 through 22. As Paul gives this warning, he's first going to give them a history lesson to show uh, how serious this is, and then he's going to apply that history lesson uh, to them. So we're going to look at this in two parts this morning. First, the history lesson that he gives them. The church needs to learn the real danger of idolatry by looking at the history of the people of Israel. 
Now, Paul has just challenged this church in Corinth that they need to discipline themselves and they need to run to win. They need to put the gospel at the center of their lives, uh, have it be the driving force of everything in their lives. So forget about fighting for your rights, forget about your personal preferences. It's everything for the gospel. And as he concludes that, he, he ends it with a really intriguing remark. Look at verse 27 of chapter 9. He says, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. That's an interesting remark, right? He's, he's personalizing what he's telling this church, and he's making it clear that he's aware that he could lose everything. I mean, this is Paul. He's, he's been bringing the gospel all throughout the, the known world of his time, and he's saying that he could be disqualified from the prize. He could lose everything. Well, how would that happen? What would that look like? That's what he goes on in chapter 10 to explain. You don't have to look any further than the history of the people of Israel. Look at verses 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Now, Paul is assuming that you know a lot about Old Testament history. If you don't know much about the Old Testament, we need to do a quick little recap of how, what he's talking about here. So the Bible talks about God creating everything uh, very good in the beginning. Everything has the right form, the right function. Everything is, is just right. But then you look around the world today, and you see that everything doesn't seem quite right. There's lots of things that are hard and difficult in the world. We have to ask the question, well, where does that come from? The Bible answers that question by saying it's rebellion against God. It's sin. So in the third chapter of Genesis, God had given a direct command to these first humans, and they disobeyed it. And the Bible indicates that that started the whole unraveling of all the goodness of creation. And every single area, every single aspect of life is affected by that, by a rebellion against him. Now, God was not content to just let us live in that mess. And so he set about to bless his people, to, to remake his creation according to the goodness that he had set about to do. And so he did that, first of all, by choosing a man named Abraham. And he made a huge promise to Abraham. He told Abraham that he would make him to be a blessing to all people on earth, that his descendants, his family, would become a great nation that would show the greatness of God for everyone to see. That's a huge promise. And so Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons and was renamed Israel. And that has come to become the people that we know as Israel or the Jews. And they had a special relationship with God. They were called to live with God as their king, as it was originally intended when God first created, to obey him, to worship him. And as they did that, as they played this out in their everyday life, they would show everyone around them how great God is. And these opening verses of chapter 10, Paul is pointing back to how that relationship was established and grown. So he, he talks about them being under the cloud and passing through the sea. That's referring back to this great time in the history of Israel where they were slaves in Egypt. That wasn't a good thing, but God was determined to set them free. And so he raised up a man named Moses. And he sent Moses down to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to set his people free from slavery. And so through all these huge, miraculous things, God uh, released his people from slavery in Egypt. And the, the culmination of that was the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, Pharaoh had finally released them from slavery and sent them on their way. 
But then he changed his mind, and he chased after them. And so the people of Israel, this big nation, finds themselves trapped and helpless at the edge of the sea. So what do they do? Well, God rescues them again. He parts the waters of the sea. They're able to walk across on dry land, and the water passes or um, comes back together so the Egyptians can't pursue them anymore. So this is what he's talking about when he talks about them passing through the sea. It's this huge uh, identity-shaping event that happened for the people of Israel. And it also says that they were under the cloud. This is another symbol of God's presence. There was this uh, cloud that came with them during the day. It looked like a, a cloud, and at night it looked like a pillar of fire. This was the symbol of God's presence with them. Now, uh, through these things, Paul t- says that it was like Israel was baptized into Moses. In other words, they, they were truly God's people. They, they were truly part of this great covenant um, community. They were God's people. They, they ate food that God miraculously provided for them. They drank water that God miraculously provided for them. You can go back in the book of Exodus and read how, how God protected his people and brought them through just amazing, amazing things. So they really belonged to God. They were his people. And all of Israel experienced this. And yet that wasn't enough. Look at the next verse, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 10. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So think about that again. The people of Israel experiencing all these amazing things, things that, that you and I have not experienced, the parting of the water of the Red Sea, all these miraculous things. They experienced these things day in and day out. And yet, it wasn't enough. They experienced the amazing benefits of being God's people, but ultimately they failed to receive God's blessing. Well, what went wrong? Listen and learn. Verses 6 through 10. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written that people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. So the people of Israel experienced amazing things that God did for them, and yet they didn't continue to follow him. They thought that they could be God's people and yet kind of test the boundaries on a couple things. Maybe get another couple gods over here. Maybe engage in a little bit of sexual immorality over there. Maybe test God here. Maybe grumble against him here. So they experience these amazing things, and yet they lose everything. And as a result, God punishes them. Most of them didn't get to experience the blessing of living in the land that God had promised them. So we need to listen carefully. This is instructive for us. Look at verses 11 through 13. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Israel's history has to be a wake-up call for us. We are imperfect people just like they were. And that means that we are going to be tempted to fail and to fall in the same way that they did. They experienced God in powerful ways, and they still, most of them, still lost everything. And the same can be true of us. So the big history lesson that we have to learn is this. We can experience God powerfully and still lose everything. 
Verse 12 is one of the most sobering verses in the Bible to me. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. What a sobering verse. It it really is an an incredible wake-up call to us. And I can't stress enough how important it it is for us to pay attention to a verse like this. For me, I look at countless examples of pastors and ministry leaders who looked very strong spiritually, were used powerfully by God, and yet who have fallen into devastating sin. I mean, just this past summer, a nationally known, a well-respected pastor in Florida resigned after admitting to having an affair with someone outside of his marriage. A top leader in our own denomination resigned this summer after it was discovered that he had um, ongoing issues uh, with moral failure and sexual sin. Another free church uh, in Michigan in the past several years has had two different pastors that have had sexual relationships outside of their marriages. Uh, Another Michigan pastor, my friend, took his own life two years ago when it was found out that he was failing morally. We can do two things with these examples. We can say, those are terrible people. Look at those terrible things that they did. That would never happen to me. Or we can hear what Paul's saying. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Because these are people who, who had experienced God in powerful ways. They were, they were strong people, with, with some of them with, with vibrant spiritual walks. God used them mightily in the, in the lives of these other people. They were good pastors. They were good leaders. And yet they lost everything. Be careful. If you think you're standing, if you think you are strong, watch out so you don't fall. It's a huge wake-up call. We have to learn from history, right? We, we have to have the sobriety of realizing that we're not above this. We're the same people as that. We're exactly the same. We have the same things in our hearts as every other human does. Now, in the midst of this sobriety, that the passage brings, there's also a word of great hope here. Don't miss verse 13. Right after the huge wake-up call, verse 12, verse 13 says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so you can endure it. And what a great word of hope after the, the sobriety of, of looking at the message of the people of Israel and how they experienced God so powerfully and yet lost everything. What a, what a great word here that God will be faithful, that there is hope, not because you and I are so strong, but there is hope because God is faithful. He will provide us a way out so that we don't have to continue that same pattern. We can learn from the history of these others to, to watch our lives, to watch how we're living But because God is faithful, because he is with us, the story of Israel experiencing God and failing, the story of these pastors uh, being used by God and failing, the story of the big and small ways that that you and I continue to fail God, that doesn't have to be repeated in your life. It doesn't have to be repeated in my life because God is faithful. That's why there's hope here. That's why we can actually learn from this history and not just hear it and get ready because we're going to do the same thing. It has to change the story. So th- this history lesson is, is really significant for me. It's, it's saying that, that God can, can powerfully be in someone's life, and yet they can totally fall away from him. 
It's a big lesson to be learned. From that lesson, then, we actually have to apply that. And that's what Paul does next, to apply this lesson to the particular situation facing the church in Corinth. This church has to participate in the meal of Christ, he's going to say now, not the meal of demons. He's going to make the point right at the very beginning, verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And that's the bottom line of this, this whole message that he's giving them. Run away from idolatry. And this should be a very obvious thing, right? Idolatry is worshiping any God other than the true God revealed in Jesus. And so as Christians, we know that we are called to worship that one God and that one God alone. So, of course, we should run away from idolatry, run away from worshiping any other God. But the history lesson about Israel is to wake us up to the reality that our tendency is to run after and worship other things. For the Christians in Corinth, this is happening in kind of a subtle way. See, these instructions are part of a, a larger response to a particular issue that's going on in the church that Paul has started dealing with in chapter 8. What do you do with food that's been sacrificed to idols? Right? Corinth was a city that was full of people that worshipped a whole bunch of different gods other than the one true God. So if you went to the meat market, for example, to buy meat, there was a pretty good chance that that meat had been in, at some level involved in the worship of another god. We're going to deal with that next week. But more importantly for right now, they had feasts and banquets that were held in honor of these other gods. So someone would host a big party and have it in one of the temples of these gods, and they would invite a whole bunch of their friends, and the invitation would say something like, the god Serapis invites you to eat with him. There have been inscriptions found with that kind of a thing on it. Now, the Corinthian Christians get part of this right and part of this very wrong. The part that they get right is understanding that these other gods really aren't anything. There is one true God. He's been revealed in Jesus Christ, and, and he has created everything. He is the only true God. Other people can name other gods, and they're supposed deities, but there's no substance to that. So, so far, they're right. There is one true God, which means that these other supposed gods, like Serapis, and they're nothing. That part they get right, and Paul affirms that in chapter 8. But the part they get wrong is thinking that they can go into these temples to other gods and they can sit down at a banquet given in honor of another god and eat food sacrificed to that other god. Paul is going to point out the problem now in view of the Christian uh, practice of Lord's Supper. Listen to what he says now in verses 15 through 22. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And Paul has to be careful here. It, it isn't that suddenly that God is something. It isn't like the idol is, is anything. It isn't like the food is anything. The problem is, if you go to the temple of another God and you take one of these meals, you are participating with that supposed God. And that supposed God, if it's any God other than the true God, 
is really driven by demonic influences. So Serapis, these other gods, they don't exist, but demons do exist. There are spiritual forces that are opposed to the worship of the true God. And so these other people in, in Corinth who are not followers of Jesus, they are worshiping these other supposed gods and thinking that they're giving a sacrifice to those gods, but what they're actually doing is giving a sacrifice to demons. And so when a Christian sits down to eat one of these meals, they're actually participating in the meal, not of Christ, they're participating in the meal of demons. It's not good. The point is clear. Verse 21 makes it uh, as plain as can be. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. He's telling us, you have to choose. And if you think it doesn't matter to choose or not, if you think you don't actually have to choose, well, then you've totally failed to apply the history lesson that Paul just gave from the people of Israel. Look at what they did. They were trying to worship the true God in some sense, but they were trying to have add-ons to it. Maybe another God here, there, another experience here, there, something else here, there. So they're, they're ostensibly worshiping the true God, but also trying to worship other things alongside of them. They're trying to have it both ways. The people of Israel tested the boundaries of what was going to be acceptable for them. They grumbled against God. They tested him. And in the end, even though they experienced the great power of God in ways that few of us have ever experienced, they lost everything. Paul's saying, don't let the same thing happen to you. Don't play around seeing how far you can go. The Corinthians have to realize that the testing the boundaries is going to prove disastrous for them. They have to make a choice. They have to take idolatry seriously See how big of a problem this is and choose. Is it Jesus or is it Jesus and something else, which means not Jesus at all? It's an exclusive relationship that we're called to. We have to make a choice. It's like with marriage. Nine years and 11 months ago, I stood up on the platform of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, across from my wife. I'm going to face this way so I don't cry. Uh, Across from my wife, and I held her hands, and I promised that I would love her for the rest of our lives. And in doing so, what did I say? I said that I would forsake all others and cling only to her. And that has established a relationship now. And that means that I'm not going around seeing if I can have a bunch of different relationships with other women. I'm not trying to see how far I can go with another woman. No, I'm in an exclusive relationship. Those vows mean something. Marriage means something. It's, It's this one and no other. That's what it means. It's the same thing here with, with worshiping Christ. It's this one God revealed in Jesus, or it's, and it's no other. You have to make a choice. And then look how Paul draws them back away from the edge by pointing them to a more powerful reality. In verse 16, he's using the Lord's Supper as a way to show them that they are united to Christ, that they belong to him. He says in verse 16, when you take the, the cup at the Lord's Supper, you are participating in the blood of Christ. When you take the bread at the Lord's Supper, you are participating in the body of Christ. That means that there is a union with Christ that happens in the Lord's Supper, not in kind of a magical way, but in a way that reminds us that we really belong to him, that we are his, and we are only his, that we participate in him, that we belong to him. And so baptism and Lord's Supper, the the reason we do this is for that same thing. Baptism, you are, are dunked in the water and brought back up as a symbol that you belong to Jesus. You died with him. You've risen with him. Your life belongs to him. You're united to him. 
And then with Lord's Supper, we're consistently reminded of the same reality. When we take the bread, when we take the cup, we remember again that we belong to Him, that we are in Him, that we belong to Him. We are His and we're only His. And further, Paul says that that means that we're also tied together. We're taking of, of the same bread. There's one loaf to symbolize our, our one bodiness, our one uh, participation in Christ together. We belong to one another there as well. Now, if this simple meal that we take together as a church means that we're united to Jesus and we're united to his people, well, then what do those other meals that are taken at those pagan feasts reminiscent of? Well, they're a counterfeit of the same thing, right? They are participating, not in Christ now, but in something that's not Christ, something that is opposed to Christ. The two meals, Paul is saying, are are mutually exclusive. If you belong to Jesus, then you don't belong to those other gods. And if you belong to those other gods, well, then you don't belong to Jesus. They're, They're mutually exclusive. You cannot belong to both. It's like being a college football fan, right? You can be a fan of the University of Michigan. You can be a fan of the Ohio State University. But you can't be both, right? I didn't grow up uh, around college football. I had to kind of learn this, but I've learned enough to know that those are mutually exclusive categories. You can be a Wolverine or you can be a Buckeye, but you cannot be both. Now, some of you would say the same is true for University of Michigan and Michigan State, but I'm not going to stir that up right now because I know that's kind of a heated debate uh, among some of you. But these, these Christians in Corinth, they think that they are strong, they think that they are wise, and they think then that they're, they're confident that they have the ability to not be affected by these meals in the pagan temples. But they're totally missing the point. If you belong to Christ, you belong to him and to no other. And to go to these meals makes it look like you don't belong to Christ, that you do belong to something else, someone else. That they're pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable for a Christian to do. But Paul is, is bringing them back to reality. You have to pick a side. Rather than playing with the boundaries, you have to choose which one it is. You have to ruthlessly root out idolatry and cling to Christ instead. There is no Jesus plus something else. There's no Jesus plus idols. There's no Jesus plus anything else. It's Jesus alone or it's not Jesus at all. Now this cuts into our lives in two different ways. This cuts into our thinking and it cuts into our action. This cuts into our thinking by giving us clarity and by giving us sanity. So the the stuffy kind of word um, that this works against is pluralism. Pluralism is this idea that that all religions are basically uh, equal. They can be basically boiled down to the same thing. So Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, animism, all of these things are, are different expressions of trying to reach beyond just the human level, beyond ourselves. And pluralism would say that they are all basically equally valid. Let's be honest here. Some of us are going to be attracted by this kind of a thinking because it, it seems to be able to bring people together past their differences. We've, we've seen there's been a lot of violence. There's been a lot of wars and battles and things uh, that are based in religious beliefs. And if you don't want to have those continue, maybe this would be a solution to that. But the problem is it doesn't actually work with any of those different religions. It destroys the internal logic of any of them and it, by treating them all the same. And in the end, what you are left with is nothing. It's emptiness. So Paul is able to cut through the, the pluralistic thinking that we might be tempted to by pointing out that Jesus is not on the same level as anything else. It's Jesus plus nothing. 
Jesus plus anything doesn't work at all. You can't have both. You either have Jesus or you have something else. You can't have both. So this cuts into our pluralistic thinking. It also cuts into our actions. Uh, the stuffy word here that this works against is syncretism. Syncretism is basically pluralistic thinking worked out in actions. So it's, it's trying to do the Jesus thing and come to church and all that and then do other things along the side. So uh, in a strictly religious sense, that would be, say, coming to church on a Sunday morning and then going home and then hanging some Buddhist prayer flags in your backyard, expecting some kind of spiritual benefit from those things. You're kind of playing the field, religiously speaking, to try to get as much benefit as possible. But most of us, uh, at least if we're confessing Christians, are more subtle than that. Most of us are not going to do outright uh, different religious uh, practices. But we worship lots of things without ever really considering them to be gods or considering them to be idols. Uh, Martin Luther, the, the 15th century reformer, said that a god is what you look to for your good. A god is what you go to when you are in distress. A god is what you believe in and what you trust in. And that means that some of us worship as gods things that are not considered religious at all. Our job, maybe, or, or our family, or peer relationships, or maybe our own abilities, or, or maybe money, or maybe a sexual relationship. There are lots of things that we would go to for our good, go to when we want to feel better about ourselves, go to and, and trust in those things. Occasionally, we see surprising honesty in one of those, in, when it comes to this kind of thing. My, my wife came across a set of uh, kids' pajamas uh, recently for Christmas, a new series that comes out and says, Oh, come, let us adore me. At first, I thought this was really great until I saw the last word. I thought, oh, great. It's great that a company is, is kind of celebrating Christmas in such an ostensible way. But, but look at what they did. They replaced Jesus, O come, let us adore him, Jesus, with O come, let us adore me. And of course, it's supposed to be cute, right? But really, it's shocking if you think about what's being said here. It's shocking not only for its explicit uh, uh, rearranging of Christ to me, but it's also shocking because of how true it probably is. For most of us, I am what I would put in the role of a God. It is about me, my desires, what I want. See, syncretism is so dangerous for the reason that's illustrated by the example of Israel. We can think that we're okay. We can consider ourselves God's people faithfully following him. We can experience his power in profound ways. And yet despite all that, we can lose everything. We can get kind of lulled into a slow death, not realizing that Jesus plus anything else, is disaster. Paul is telling us we have to make a choice. And this is a choice that every single one of us does have to make sooner or later. Is it Jesus or is it something that's not Jesus? Now some of us know exactly what our idols are. When we think about identifying and rooting out idols, we know exactly what we turn to that's not Jesus and put in his, in his place. And we have to root those things out ruthlessly. Some of us, though, are not clear on what those things are, and that's even more dangerous. So let me give you three diagnostic questions if you don't know what your own uh, personal idols, your own gods that you tend to put in opposition to Jesus are. The first one is this. What is on your mind more than anything else? If you were to, to kind of catalog what you thought about through the day, what keeps popping up again and again and again? The odds are good that whatever is on your mind that much is something that probably competes with Christ for the center of your affections and your attention. Second question is this. Where do you most want to spend your money? 
See, our, our money tends to follow our hearts. So if you are spending a bunch of money on something, it's a pretty good indicator that, that that's where your heart is. Or if you want to be spending a bunch of money on something, there's a pretty good uh, indicator that that's probably something that's very close to your heart. It's probably something that you think of as much as or maybe more than Jesus himself. Third diagnostic question, what can most quickly trigger an emotional response in you? Either anger or joy or happiness the things that, that, that are close to our heart can be triggers like that to, to move us to an emotional response. And, and when you identify what those things are, again, there's a pretty good chance that some of those things are the things that will compete with God's place in your life. They are your idols. So you have to identify them, and then you have to work to relentlessly root them out in light of what Paul's saying here. He's saying you have a choice. You have to choose between the two. You belong to Jesus or you belong to something else. Don't fall into the same trap that Israel fell into, that others have fallen into. You choose Jesus or you're on a course for disaster. That means you have to look at the things in your life and look at the things that draw you closer to God and keep doing those things. And then look at the things that draw you away from God and you stop doing those things. It's as simple as that. But when you find yourself kind of dabbling at the edge, like a little child kind of wondering how deep they can go into the water before getting into trouble, well, you're already in trouble. That's what Paul's saying. As soon as you start to, to wander in that direction, there's something wrong already. You've got to stop that, turn around, and come back to Christ. So here's the call for us this morning. We have to run away from other gods. We've got to cling to Christ. We have a choice to make. And one of the great things about this morning is that we have the Lord's table right in front of us. We get to uh, symbolically and, and, and in, rea- in reality make that choice this morning. You get to publicly, before this uh, group of believers, you get to publicly uh, take a stand with Christ. 